purposes. Let me join with Blake in telling us to continue to be diligent in the midst of this pandemic. We don't know how long this is going to last. I know that uh, you're like me. You're getting tired of it. Uh, I mean, I have to admit, I kind of like wearing a mask. I don't know why. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's kind of like Halloween year-round, right? I mean, you just get to wear it all the time. Uh, you know, June gets a little irritated because I want to wear it at the house, but that's okay. She'll get over it. But uh, let's continue to be diligent. Let's, let's practice social distancing. Uh, I know that's a challenge for all of us, and yet uh, I'm constantly hearing of uh, cases. And, and, and while most people recover from it, and we know that, there are those that don't. And we want to continue to remember them in our prayers. So let's be diligent. I don't know of any text that I'm more passionate about right now than the text we're looking at today. I'm passionate because of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, The text that we read just a moment ago is set up in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 is one of multiple texts that deal with the resurrection of Jesus. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20 and 21, and 1 Corinthians 15, perhaps one of the longest texts about the resurrection and its implications. I became passionate about 15 years ago. Up until about 15 years ago, the resurrection was just the resurrection. Something we celebrated, Blake, every Easter. You know, Jesus was raised from the dead, wonderful. And then we would talk some, occasionally, about our own resurrection of the dead. Even though, to be honest with you, that never made a lot of sense to me. Why be raised from the dead? I want to explore the implications of that today. Now, if you were a part of our Wednesday night series, in fact, a little over a year ago, we started in September of uh, last year, looking at the subject of what, what I call better than heaven. What happens at the end of time? And I'm going to be going back and revisiting some of that. Now, if you were not here on Wednesday nights, that series is available online at hendersonville.org. I would encourage you to go. It's a six-month series, so it's fairly long. But I would encourage you to go back and maybe watch it if you're interested in it. But I may be presenting some things that may be new to you, and I hope you'll simply search the Scriptures, see if what I'm saying is true, and then if it is, to follow it. It's that simple. The resurrection of Jesus. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb uh, to look at the tomb. They actually were taking spices. Matthew doesn't mention that. Matthew, of all the gospel writers, summarizes the resurrection narrative very quickly. And, And so Matthew leaves out a lot of details that especially Luke and John tell us. Verse 2. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And then the text that we read together just a moment ago. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. There's the the message. He is not in this tomb. 
He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. A little over two and a half years ago, I had the privilege of going to Israel. And if you go to Israel and, and you go on one of the guided tours, one of the places you naturally go is what's called the Garden Tomb. It's a tomb just outside this, the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, it's next to a cliff that looks just like a skull. Thus the word Golgotha or Calvary. And it's a, and it's a tomb that literally had a big rock that rolled up uh, over the entrance to the tomb. You can see the tracks of where that rock would roll. And I had the privilege of going inside that tomb of looking at a literally carving out of the rock where they would have laid the person's body. Now, I don't know if that was Jesus' tomb, but I've got to tell you that it was an absolutely incredibly sobering moment to walk in there and to see where at least at some point in time someone lay and perhaps Jesus himself. He's not there. Come and see the place where he lay. You know, if you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and, and David referred to, first, uh, or to, to the Corinthian church, it's a church that really struggled with a lot of issues. Not only David was at the Lord's Supper, but it was also the resurrection. They really had a problem with it. And notice this is from the Passion Translation. I love oftentimes the Passion Translation. Here's what Paul said, For I have shared with you what I have received and what is of utmost importance. In other words, here's Paul saying, if I had to summarize it, very much like last week's text in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. You know, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Here is the same message, except just expanded a little bit. The Messiah died for our sins, fulfilling the prophecies of the Scripture. He was buried in the tomb and was raised from the dead after three days as foretold in the Scriptures. And then he explains the problem. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, someone was teaching there at Corinth, and we'll look at why here in a few moments. In fact, it was something that Paul ran into, I think, a lot during his missionary travels. But someone was teaching that there is no such thing as a resurrection of the dead. Paul then says, but let me tell you how important it is. Look at his summary statement here. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, my preaching is useless. Your faith is useless. In fact, if there is no resurrection of the dead... What we're doing here is literally to be pitied. Why in the world get up on a Sunday morning, go to a building, focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of someone if there is no such thing as the resurrection? Now, why did this bother Paul so much? I mean, what was it about the doctrine of the resurrection that was so important to him and the Jewish people? And if you go back and begin to kind of work your way through the Bible, the Old Testament to begin with, Job asks a very fascinating question. If a man dies, will he live again? 
Now let me say something about what Job is asking. Job is not asking if a man dies or if a woman dies, do they keep on living? That's not what he's asking. He's asking if a person dies, is it possible for them to come back and be alive again very much like they were before they died? Is that possible? And you work your way through the Old Testament. Isaiah is the first to really introduce this concept of the resurrection. And then Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, talks about how that multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. There is this coming resurrection. And and by the time you get down to Jesus' day, all the Jews believed it, with the exception of the Sadducees. And, And we'll talk about why they didn't here in just a moment. But the Jews believed in a resurrection. When Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead, Martha went out to meet him as he was coming into Bethany, and they had a conversation. And Jesus turns to her and says, Your brother will rise again. Martha already knew that. It's just she didn't expect it to happen within the next few minutes. In fact, notice what she says. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, the last day here to Jews was the beginning of the Messianic kingdom. When the Messiah comes, when he ushers in the Messianic kingdom, then the dead will be raised. That's the last day of this age and the ushering in of the new age. Jesus would go on to say to her that he is the resurrection and the life. And and he'll say some things that we need to hear The one who believes in me will live even though they die. There's the promise of Jesus. And whoever lives by believing in me, they actually will never die. In other words, even though we die, there is a sense in which we continue to live at least for a while until the resurrection. And the reason this is so important is because of that very question. If a man dies, will he live again? Jesus did. He is risen. He is not here. Now, why were some Christians at Corinth denying Jesus' resurrection? And this is so important. I know it's, it's hard for us to grasp and to get our minds around it, and yet we have been sucked into it to some degree. I'll talk about that here in just a second. But you see, in, in the first century, there was a philosophy that literally permeated the Roman Empire called Platonic Dualism. If you were here in the Wednesday night series, you heard me talk about it. Platonic Dualism came from one of the great Greek philosophers. I'm sure all of y'all remember from history in high school. Three great philosophers. One was Socrates. Socrates had a student whose name was Plato. This is where this doctrine came from. Plato had a student whose name was Aristotle. And then Aristotle had a student who was known as Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great took the philosophy of these three men and literally spread it over the known world of that time. And among that philosophy was this thing called Platonic Dualism. Plato wrote a series of books called The Republic. And you can still get those. They're still available. They were so important that the Greeks just kept copying them and copying them and copying them. And they've come down to us now over 2,400 years later. Among his belief when it came to Platonic dualism was the belief that the spirit realm is perfect 
Whereas the physical realm is but a shadow of imperfection. Now, let, let me again try to put that in layman's terms. Plato taught that there were two realities. Physicality, that we're in right now, and spirituality up in the heavens. Everything that's here on the earth is a shadow, an imperfect shadow, of the real thing up in the true heavens, the spiritual reality. And so, for instance, this podium here. This podium, even though it appears real to me, is but actually a shadow of the real one that's up in the heavens. The building. Yeah, it's, it's a building. It's a physical building. We can see it. But it's a physical building that's in perfect shadow of the one that's up in the heavens. Now, the New Testament writers sometimes use that to teach truth. For instance, one of the things you hear a lot, especially in the book of Hebrews, is that the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come in the New Testament. Okay? So they'll pick up on that dualistic uh, Platonism in order to kind of teach truths. But one of the areas that wasn't helpful was in the resurrection of the dead. You see, if this is but a shadow of reality, the goal of humanity is to escape physicality. That's what the Greeks taught. Our goal is to get rid of this physical body and to fly away as a spiritual reality. And so we'll spend eternity, the Greeks called it Elysian Fields, we'll fly off to the Elysian Fields and there we'll enjoy eternity in a place of perfection. Boy, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sound almost like some of what we have taught as Christians. And yet when you turn to the Bible, you don't find this idea that physicality is somehow imperfect, a shadow of reality. Here's God's creation of the heavens and the earth. God saw that all that he was made, all that he made, and it was not a shadow, not imperfect. In fact, it was very good. It was what God exactly meant it to be. And that's one of the most important things we, under, we need to understand is that I'm the way God created me to be. I'm not talking about in, in the fact that I'm a sinner. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about to be a physical, integrated human being with God's breath within me. That's what God created me to be. He did not create this body to be kind of a temporary storage place for my spirit until he could set me free. That's not what God intended. He intended for Adam and Eve to live in the garden and to have access to the tree of life and therefore to live forever. But sin messed that up and Jesus came, of course, to correct that. As this doctrine of Platonic dualism spread in the church, it developed a, a very strange doctrine known as the doctrine of the Antichrist. Uh, you probably heard that phrase, Antichrist, before. Unfortunately, it's been hijacked. Uh, a lot of believers have taken that phrase, the Antichrist, they pulled it out of its context, and supposedly it's this character that's going to come at the end of time and, and, and it's going to you know, make war on the people of God, the Antichrist. 
And you'll hear preachers on the radio talking about he's probably already alive somewhere in the world. Boy, I've heard that throughout my entire life. He's already been born over in the Middle East. He's going to eventually gain power and take over the world. Can I just tell you that that's not what the Antichrist in the Bible is? You see, the word Antichrist is only found in two books. 1 John and 2 John. And in 2 John, John tells us what the Antichrist is. Look at 2 John verse 7. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus, have, that, that do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, I need to emphasize that, have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. There it is. What was he talking about here? He's talking about Platonic dualism. You see, as Christianity merged with the Roman Greek world, one of the problems it ran into was this Platonic dualism. And, and Platonic dualism says that this physical body of mine is imperfect. Imperfect shadow of the real one that's up in the heavens. Now, okay, mine is an imperfect body. Jesus's wasn't. And that's where a lot of the Greeks, including the ones there at Corinth, ran into a problem. If Jesus was perfect, how could he have a physical body? Because a physical body was by nature imperfect. And so what these people began to teach is that Jesus really didn't have a physical body. He just seemed to have a physical body. In other words, if you'd gone up to Jesus while he was here on the earth and reached out, your hand would have gone right through him. There was nothing there. Oh, it appeared to be something there. In fact, the doctrine became known in the second century as doceticism. And it comes from the Greek word that means to appear to be there, to seem to be there. And again, it was this belief that somehow physicality was by its very nature evil or imperfect. And it's not. And so John is fighting against that in his first two epistles that he writes. Now, what does the doctrine of the resurrection say to us about eternity? I mean, why is resurrection so important? And here's where we need to really think through it. You see, there are two possible views out here. I was raised with the first one, probably like you were. Christians die, they go to heaven where they spend eternity with God. That's what I was raised to believe. Now, somewhere in there, you put in a resurrection. But why? I don't know. Why a resurrection of the body since it's not the body that goes to heaven? It's the spirit that goes to heaven. And I've even had people to say, well, we're raised physically, but then as we ascend up to heaven to be with God, our physicality simply evaporates. Then why be raised physically? Why a resurrection of the dead? To look at this further, and this is the view that most people, or the passage that most people quote, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If they were not so, would I have not told you that I'm going there and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And we quote this verse as if this verse says that we die and our spirit flies off to heaven and we spend eternity with God. That's really not what that verse says. 
simply says that God's preparing a place for us. Jesus is preparing a place for us that will eventually live with him forever. You see, problems with this first view, and, and over the last 15 years, I've really struggled with it. Number one, the bodily resurrection of the believer becomes irrelevant. I run into people all the time. I mean, cemeteries, when someone's being buried and people will say, well, this is their final resting place. Their spirit's going to be with God forever. And I want to scream at the top of my voice, what about the resurrection of the dead? If this is my final resting place, is there no resurrection of the dead? And people will say, well, the resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. Folks, let me tell you something. There's no such thing as spiritual resurrection. There's only a physical resurrection, just as Jesus was raised physically number two death is not destroyed if this is true and james 2 26 says the body without the spirit is dead you see if i die and my spirit goes to live with god i'm still dead because my body and spirit are separated from each other and yet paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death death somehow is going to be overcome how is death overcome death is overcome by the body and spirit coming back together again called resurrection and then number three this is a resurrection pardon the pun of platonic dualism again the belief that the early some of the early Christians at Corinth had you know the goal is to get away from the body not to be controlled by the body another view is this one and this is the one that I've adopted in the last 15 years Christians die but await the resurrection when God will create new heavens and a new earth and come down and dwell with his new creation. In other words, the goal is not for us to fly off to heaven. The goal is for God to create new heavens and a new earth and heaven and earth becoming one under God's authority. Now you say, but Leslie, where do you get that? I, I thought God's going to destroy the heavens and the earth. He is. 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire. Yes, what we see here right now will be burned up. But what people fail to do is to read the very next verse. Look at the very next verse, verse 13. But in keeping with this promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven, and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. Now notice, in keeping with this promise, the promise is found in Isaiah 65. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. There's what Isaiah predicted some 800 years earlier. And then when you get to Revelation, you see that new heaven and new earth coming into being. You see, I've been urging people, let's go back and read the book of Revelation again, and let's believe it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. You know, it's fascinating that John sees a new Jerusalem, and, and then he says, look, the dwelling of God is now with, with, with people, and he will dwell with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, John says, we don't go up to be with God, God comes down to be with us as heaven and earth becomes one. Here's that new Jerusalem concept. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people and weeping and crying, no more. And Revelation says that's true. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things 
has passed away. And then God says this. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, and the most important, new resurrected bodies for those of us who believe in Jesus. And so Paul would go on in the Corinthian letter to say this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits. Do you know what a first fruits is? A first fruits is that which comes with the promise that others will follow. And that's why I have hope. As I look at the grave of a loved one and, of course, look forward to the time when, unless Jesus comes back, I too will be there. My hope is in the fact that Jesus came out of that grave that Sunday morning. And he has promised one day to bring me and you out of that grave as well. That's why the resurrection is so important. Again, we don't extend invitations. We, we simply offer people, if you, if you need prayers, if you need to be baptized, see me after services. Two of our elders are up here in the balcony, Brother Rod uh, over here and Brother Mike over here. They'd be happy to assist you. Just go and grab them and say, hey, I need something prayed for, and they'll be happy to pray with you. But I pray that this week, this passage, he is not here, he is risen. It will be a passage that will resonate because of what he will eventually do in our lives as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Not only that Jesus suffered and died, was buried, but most importantly, three days later, was raised from the dead, the first fruits of the resurrection, and what, Father, you have promised to come. Father, may our hearts be filled with hope because he too came out of the grave. We too will follow. And we ask it in his name. Amen.